Ciao, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about how space technology and exploration are transforming our solar system. Doug, welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Uh, how are things in California and, and JPL? Well, the weather in Southern California is pretty nice. Have a lot of fires burning in Northern California, but we've got a very pleasant summer here uh, in Southern California weather-wise. So that's that's good for this time of year. Yep, those fires subside. So, but um, um, to, yeah, us too. Today's episode is on metallic glass, amorphous metals, and and strain rate gears, and and all sorts of exciting topics. Um, before we dive into your story, Doug, uh, could you enlighten us? What what are metallic glass or, or, or amorphous metals? Sure. And as we get started, the standard boilerplate for uh, for me is that you know all the opinions I express today are my own and don't represent NASA or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So uh, amorphous metals, they're uh, a class of metal alloys that are uh, non-crystalline. So uh, most metals that people are familiar with, um, all the atoms in there are arranged nicely in these perfect lattices. And the mechanical properties of those materials are dependent on the way those atoms are arranged in lattices. But there's class of materials, uh, glasses, where the atoms are arranged uh, randomly. And so the window pane glass that you see here, or you know, your glass, uh, your, your glass, uh, drink that you're drinking out of, all the atoms in, in those are arranged randomly. So uh, there's a unique class of metal alloys where instead of all the atoms being arranged uh, in a typical lattice, they're all you know arranged randomly like an oxide glass. And so you get what is an amorphous metal, also known as a metallic glass, which is you know effectively it is a glass that is made out of metal, except it's not uh, transparent. So you would really not know that you're looking at an amorphous metal uh, if you were if you were holding one, but it's got properties that are really unique compared to crystalline metals because of the way all the atoms are arranged. So this is one of the many unique materials that we study at NASA to try to implement into spacecraft, satellites, and rovers for other planets to try to get a science advantage by using uh, a material with unique properties. Nice. Nice. And um, it's reading a lot of the constituent elements are, are often the zirconium, titanium, and, and copper and some others. Yeah, you can make amorphous metals from a wide variety uh, of alloy systems. Uh, typically, you would find them in zirconium, titanium, copper, iron, uh, nickel, um, but you can make them in, in ref refractory metals. You can make them in uh, precious metals like platinum and palladium and gold. Um, so there are a, you know, a, a wide variety of amorphous metals, but the common ones that you know, are kind of suitable for production of parts of substantial size are typically you know, zirconium, copper, titanium, nickel aluminum kind of alloys nice i'd love to hear more about your uh you know your your career and and you have such an inspiring 
and well-accomplished career. Uh, yeah. So like, you know, many people, I started out my university, my undergrad without a lot of clear direction about where I wanted to go. I was sort of drawn to engineering and I was good at math. So, you know, I went to uh, UC San Diego and just enrolled in mechanical engineering degree because it seemed like the most versatile engineering degree, but I didn't really, you know, have a particular specialty that I was that interested in and so on. Um, but during, you know, my time there and while I did my master's degree there, uh, I started to work with some professors that were um, involved with uh, material science and manufacturing. Um, so I started doing some welding and some, um, you know, development of new materials enabled through um, severe plastic deformation and so on. And I start to really uh, learn to love materials, manufacturing, um, and mechanical testing. So when I completed my master's degree at UC San Diego, I was kind of considering, well, maybe I should go get uh, a PhD in material science so that I can you know, sort of specialize in this area of materials and manufacturing, basically metallurgy. And, uh, and so at that time, which was around you know, 2003, 2004, you know, metallurgy was not an extremely popular discipline. There were very few people uh, doing it. Um, it wasn't really at the cutting edge of, uh, you know, of where science was, uh, was happening at that time. There wasn't these huge labs doing metal 3D printing and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I selected a few uh, groups uh, around the around the world where they were doing really cool metallurgy work, um, and ultimately I decided to come here to Southern California to the California Institute of Technology, uh, Caltech. Uh, of course, I knew of the proximity of Caltech to uh, JPL. In fact, JPL um, is managed by uh, Caltech as a federally funded research and development center, so I knew that there was close ties. And then uh, my PhD advisor at Caltech, Bill Johnson, um, you know, was studying these amorphous metals, these metallic glasses, which had extremely strange properties. And he had lots of funding, uh, particularly from NASA, to study these unique materials uh, on the space shuttle and later on the space station. And uh, there was just a lot of interest in uncovering you know, what these materials were and what they could be used for. So I did my PhD in his group. Um, and then I worked in industry for a year after my PhD. And then uh, ultimately I got hired at JPL to build a metallurgy facility there to try to bring some of the advanced materials and manufacturing research from Caltech over to JPL with the idea that we should be focusing more on developing unique materials that can be used in spacecraft satellites and rovers, which is largely what JPL does. So um, there was a gap where there wasn't a research lab that was dedicated specifically to new materials for extreme environment spacecraft. So I proposed building a lab to do just that, had some significant support from management and uh, we, uh, we found some other employees at JPL that had a background in material science that were willing to, you know, lead and, uh, and, and start this effort. And off we went. 
And uh, over the last 10 years, we've built a pretty substantial materials and manufacturing effort uh, at JPL. We have a dedicated materials development group with seven scientists in it. And we've got a dedicated additive manufacturing group and you know maybe more than 20, 30 people around lab that work in, um, in this area, largely related to metal, uh, metal 3D printing. So um, it's been just a really um, wonderful ride, uh, sort of being at the beginning of this uh, effort to establish um, this new area of, of research and materials for JPL. It's incredible. Um, and um, so you, you were pretty much like, you know, the, one of the founders of, of, of these, uh, these centers at, 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 J, at, at JPL. And I think uh, you, um, uh, um, no, you, they, it was so much more during that time period that, that, that you accomplished. Uh, I feel like, you, you know, you published the 20 granted patents in, in, in 60 scientific papers. Um, it's really impressive. Uh, oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I have a great team of scientists and engineers that I work with. It's really difficult to do metallurgy and manufacturing work on an island. So I was surrounded by you know, really high quality scientists and engineers. And we also just happened to be working at the, the emergence of a new field, this field of, you know, renewed interest in metallurgy and in manufacturing um, sort of started happening around 2010. And we were, you know, um, one of the early groups working in that area. So there was a lot of discovery uh, a lot of, you know, intellectual property developed, a lot of papers that were published, a lot of collaborations, partnerships with, you know, NASA centers and the government and commercial industry. So it has been really a, a, a wonderful time these past, you know, 10 years plus. Amazing. Um, and so, so in 2014, you you founded your first spinoff company, a Amorphology, mm -hmm. to to commercialize the the bulk metallic glass, the the BMG gears and, and strain wave gears, and later you founded a second spinoff company focused on these amorphous metal metals and and coatings and 3D printed 3D printing and and other uh, areas. Um, how does your research uh, kind of tie into um, these these initiatives uh, uh, behind the the bulk metallic glass. Well, I think you know I don't really you know want to talk about specific commercial companies, but overall, um, you know, starting a spinoff company yourself because you have enough uh, intellectual property or your technology is so complicated that um, you know, other large companies don't yet understand it. So sometimes you have to start small. So um, here at uh, Caltech, uh, where I'm actually at uh, right now, um, you know, they, uh, they're a world-class university. And so it's, it's often common to, uh, you know, to seed 
technology startup companies that start with a little kernel of an idea or some uh, some intellectual property and then try to develop that into a, a commercial company that you know can go off and try to develop a product. Nice. Became really interested in these strain wave gears and and um, was wondering if you could speak more to them and 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 how uh, much potential they have for for a lot of fields and industries. Yeah, so the area of, you know, gears, it's a, it's a huge area and it's very complicated and there's many different kinds of gearboxes, you know, from like planetary gearboxes to strain wave gears, depending on the kind of application that they're going to be in. So in a lot of applications that require high torque and low backlash, like in pick and place robots that you might find on like an uh, auto assembly line. Uh, they use these large uh, gears called strain wave gears, which are very bizarre gears if you've never seen them, um, but they have very you know, nice properties in that they have a very high reduction ratio and high torque and they, uh, they, um, they don't have backlash in them. They're able to um, basically hold their position without shaking. So if you're thinking about making like a, uh, a humanoid robot that has a long arm on it, um, you think about the way your shoulder works with all the tendons and bones and muscles that lift your arm up because it's a giant lever. But if I'm gonna make myself a robot, it's pretty difficult to design all the tendons and muscles to be able to make my arm move. But I could put a large high torque strain wave gear in that arm and be able to completely lift my arm around. So, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting gearboxes that are used in space and we use a lot of them on things like our rovers, like the Mars rovers. We've had now several classes of Mars rovers you know, curiosity and opportunity and, and spirit and sojourner, perseverance. And those, um, those rovers have wheels and they have, um, uh, they have um, robotic arms that move to do drilling and to take pictures. And all of those um, use gearboxes. And there's lots of issues with running gearboxes in space. Uh, in particular, space is cold. And, um, and so you have to be able to um, you know, run a gearbox that can operate in cold vacuum environments typically. And the conventional way we make gears on earth is with steel and you lubricate the steel with liquid lubricants and then you have your gearbox. So almost every gearbox that you see today from you know, a gearbox in a robot to a gearbox in a car, it's lubricated with oil um, or other types of liquid lubricants. And if you go to space or somewhere really cold, those lubricants freeze and then your gearbox doesn't run. So you have to start thinking about dry lubricants you know, or lubricant or unlubricated uh, gears, like thinking about using a ceramic for your gearbox. Um, but of course, then you're afraid that your gearbox is gonna be brittle and um, it'll break when you land, like violently land on the surface of Mars. So there's uh, some opportunity in uh, space to be able to use uh, gearboxes um, of, of different kinds that can run cold and without liquid lubricant. And from, from some of our early experiments on um, bolt metallic glass, also known as amorphous metals, um, they have very nice combination of properties for being um, created into gears. 
um, particularly these uh, strain wave gears, which are difficult to manufacture. So overall, the, the benefit of using these materials in space-like gearboxes is um, that they can uh, operate cold without conventional liquid lubricants on them. Um, and that is a big advantage considering most of the gearboxes that we run in space don't have to run to very long life, like you would see in a car gearbox, for example. So you may be running the gearbox to open solar panels or to um, you know, move a robotic arm to do drilling or even to drive. And so um, there's you know, a really um, emerging application for these new um, gearboxes in space. And now with you know, dozens of space startup companies and established space companies um, starting to put more robotic systems into space, that require gearboxes to move them, there's this now really uni um, unique opportunity to, um, to, to use metallic glasses as those gearboxes. Wonderful. Um, and, and so I was also reading they, um, you don't need a heat source um, to, to operate the, the, the BMG gears and that, um, that uh, you could potentially these high precision gears they they cut the costs of the robotic arms by by at least fifty percent. Yeah, so about uh, what you said there, the heating first off. So if you're going to use a gearbox like on a Mars rover that um, uses conventional liquid lubricants, if it's colder than the freezing point of those lubricants, or you're in space and it's very cold. Um, you have to heat the gearbox up uh, to be able to make the lubricant uh, liquid and then you know, run the gearbox while it's hot. And so um, you usually will have to supply power to heat the, the gearbox. And in space, power is extremely precious resource, whether it's from your um, nuclear battery on your Mars rover or it's from the solar panels that you have on your uh, satellite. A space, um, uh, sorry, power is, is a precious resource. So um, using it to heat gearboxes um, so that they can operate um, is, is a frustrating part of running gearboxes in space, especially if those gearboxes could run perfectly well without the need for, uh, for the lubricant. So that's you know, a benefit of using unlubricated or dry lubricated gears in space. About the manufacturing, you know, that's kind of a, a different uh, uh, angle about um, amorphous metals is that uh, unlike, uh, you know, other materials, they can be cast or injection molded or blow molded even um, because of the unique properties of them being amorphous. So you can die cast them like plastics, you can injection mold them. Um, and you can form them thermoplastically even. So the manufacturing of the gears can be much more similar to plastics. And that doesn't mean that we wouldn't conventionally machine the amorphous metals into gears. It just means that there are other ways that you can manufacture complex parts out of them. And particularly those strain wave gears that we were talking about have one very large cup-like a component called a flex blind, which is a very thin walled cup with gear teeth on it. And that is a very difficult part to machine. So with advanced 
casting or blow molding or thermoplastic forming, um, those, uh, those gearboxes become a potentially lower cost to manufacture. So, you know, for, it's kind of two, two sides of the, uh, the issue. One is, you know, high performance in space so that you have the best possible solution if you're going to run a gearbox and make a robot in space. And then the other one is uh, the lower cost manufacturing, which has benefits for, you know, the commercial world, companies trying to make satellites that have robotic arms on them or gearboxes on them. It would benefit them if the gearboxes could be cheaper. So both of those things are possible with uh, amorphous metals. Awesome. Um... Yeah, gee whiz, that I uh, was reading that NASA's Curiosity rover, it spends around three hours heating up the lubricants for gears each each day and using about a quarter of the of the energy that day. Um, so it sounds like, you know, some major implications for, for a lot of the research that, that you helped pioneer. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a good example, both... Uh, both Curiosity and Perseverance use conventional steel gearboxes with liquid lubricant. Uh, but in particular, you'll notice that we, um, you know, we flew the Ingenuity uh, helicopter. Um, so in the future, we might be uh, interested in flying a lot more helicopters or quadcopters on Mars uh, to do further science. And so now you've got another opportunity where there might be a lot of gearboxes. And um, those gearboxes that go in a helicopter have to be very small, compact, lightweight. So now by getting rid of the uh, mean to heat them um, and, and cartridge heat them and uh, associated cabling to run heaters, now you have a potential big advantage for, um, for, for helicopters. So that's like a future infusion point, which would be ideal for these materials. But in particular, you're thinking about um, space. Uh, a lot of these small spacecrafts that are being launched, um, it's really advantageous to put robotic arms on them for all sorts of reasons, um, to, to position antennas and to, you know, open solar panels and to do in-space 3D printing if you want to. So running gearboxes in, in space will ultimately require that, you know, you manage the heat and being able to run gearboxes that don't need uh, heating is a huge advantage. Love it. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, skimming through your, uh, your highly cited PhD thesis you, you published in 2009, um, and, and you mentioned um, this titanium-vanadium-based glass dendrite composite system. Looked uh, like, like part of the core of your concept. Yeah, so that area is sort of a, a, it's a distinct area in amorphous metals, um, and that's the area of amorphous metal composites or BMG composites. And um, one of the uh, one of the issues with uh, amorphous metals uh, as they are is that they don't exhibit a lot of uh, ductility or um, very high fracture toughness. So when you use them in engineering applications, they tend to fail in a brittle manner which doesn't mean you can't design things like gearboxes around uh, that property, but for many applications, you need uh, a higher level of strength and uh, toughness uh, to survive. So mostly what I worked on on my PhD is taking 
um, metallic glasses uh, and and making composites out of them um, where the metallic glass is reinforced with soft crystal phases that impart uh, substantial amounts of toughness and ductility into them. So then you have a class of amorphous metals that have still a high strength, but um, can be bent and have much higher fracture toughness. Now, when you do that, you're mixing this, you know, hard amorphous phase with a soft phase. So some properties like wear resistance goes down a lot. So those alloys aren't particularly useful for gears, but they are useful for lots of other applications that would benefit amorphous metals in space, like flexures and mechanisms um, where you need to you know, bend apart without it breaking, without using gears. Um, and that's a, an application where amorphous metals uh, are wonderful at. Um, of course, there were lots of potential uh, commercial applications for those tougher metallic glasses and things like uh, golf clubs and, and so on, where you really want that high strength, but the high fatigue limit and the high fracture toughness. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of a distinct class of alloys within amorphous metals that has its own unique uh, application. So it sort of just broadens where you can use amorphous metal uh, technology. So instead of having applications where you just can't use an amorphous metal because the properties aren't right, you can tailor the alloys into these composites to satisfy new applications. And that's uh, kind of an exciting part about materials development, um, the ability to change the properties of your alloys to make them suitable for different applications. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited about you know coatings these days and, and and think that we can you know design and tailor systems and materials to um you know, accomplish any sort of performance with 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 the right coatings and so how, how could we apply these these um, glass metals and alloy composites into the coating side yeah you know the <laughs> the idea of the amorphous metal coatings you know that's um that has existed for, for many decades. Uh, in particular, there were some iron chromium-based alloys that were commercialized you know, in the 1970s and 80s and are still used today, which are thermally sprayed onto steel uh, for hard facing, hard banding, that kind of thing. A lot of applications in the oil and gas industry where you want just a really hard wear resistant surface that is applied to uh, something that's going to be in an abrasive um, environment. Uh, the kinds of coatings that I was really thinking about was basically, I was thinking about, well, the properties of amorphous metals in a lot of applications that I really like are the smooth finish, the hardness, the very high hardness, the wear resistance, the corrosion resistance that is um, a native of these amorphous materials the high um, uh, coefficient of restitution, which gives you this very high bouncing property off the surface. Um, there were a lot of benefits of amorphous metal that, uh, that you might wanna impart on the surface of something like uh, a golf club, for example, or on my cell phone or on my watch. Um, and there's a lot of um, materials in our everyday life that are in abrasive environments or corrosive environments. So I got to thinking about like trying to take these amorphous metals um, and instead of casting the entire part 
out of amorphous metal, like making your entire watch out of it. Uh, instead, just apply enough of the um, metallic glass to the surface of something cheaper and more, um, you know, um, tough, um, but take the advantage of the metallic glass and just get it on the surface. So that's, that was the objective. Uh, how do you do that? You know, so, um, you know, the reasons that we're interested in that kind of technology for NASA is in particular going back to the moon, for example, we have to contend with this very, um, you know, horrible regolith. And this regolith on the moon is very fine powder of basically basalt rock. And uh, it gets everywhere and it's very small. And, you know, through static uh, charge, it sticks to kind of everything. And then if you have any moving parts, you've got this really abrasive surface. So we're looking at smooth materials that are abrasion resistant, um, and so that's where these amorphous metal coatings look like they could have a lot of uh, potential advantages. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out new ways to apply these amorphous metal coatings to metal substrates. So, you know, a lot of the, the work um, that we did early on in that area was basically inventing machines that would uh, take these amorphous metals, melt them, apply them to a surface, in a way that would, you know, impart the amorphous metal properties to the surface when cooled down. So that is an area that we, you know, have demonstrated and commercial industry is working on. And it just looks like an extremely promising area. So I suspect, you know, in the future, there will be a lot of um, technologies developed in the commercial industry world uh, related to uh, amorphous metal coatings. I uh, like it. Really excited, just you know, listening to you and and um, just this entire topic. And imagine there's all sorts of uh, you know applications for for where where, where gearbox are used. You know, airplanes, automotive parts, and I was reading they're also biocompatible and, and used for the medical device implants. And and uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So. That's, you know, where those are, you know, kind of like the, the commercial targets for, you know, where these materials sort of fit. Of course, we're you know, really interested in them for spacecraft, and they appear to be one of the best solutions for making gears work in, in spacecraft and on rovers. But of course, there are a lot of commercial applications for robotics in particular that are growing. So um, there's this, you know, big trend now in automation and artificial intelligence and, um, and advanced robotics, where they're just trying to decrease the cost and increase the performance of robots. And I know, you know, when we were kids, they always told us that we'd have robot helpers and there'd be robots in our day-to-day -day lives. And a lot of that has been hindered by the cost of these robots. A lot, a lot of that is in the cost of the gears. And then, like you mentioned, in medical devices, and in, even in things like food service industry, where you don't want liquid lubricant like dripping into food as robots are making food, um, or you don't want lubricant dripping into someone's body as your surgery robot is working on them. There are lots of places where um, gearboxes that don't require lubricant have a future 
in, in the commercial world separate from the spacecraft world. So um, that, that's you know, part of the great synergy um, about, about NASA developing technology and then pushing it off to commercial industry to go run with it. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, a, we have a long-standing history at NASA of doing just that, identifying an area in space where something new is needed and then finding out that, wow, that thing has a lot of benefits um, uh, to people living on Earth. And uh, you've seen this a lot with, you know, like sensors, for example, sensors that we use to look at different planets or to, you know, um, to, to measure climate change. Those sensors can be put into drones and flown around and do all sorts of uh, cool measurements um, from here on the ground using that same technology that started at NASA. Incredible. Um, for the strain wave gears, uh, I was looking at some images and, and for the inner spline teeth, um, I was wondering if we, um, there are some kind of coatings we, that we could apply uh, uh, between the, uh, the two extra kind of teeth. Yeah, that's, you know, that is a, uh, a, a totally reasonable thing that you just said. So that flex line that becomes part of the strain wave gear, you know, that part can be cast or blow molded out of, uh, uh, out of metallic glass, um, both of which have been demonstrated, it's been machined. Um, so you could make that whole part out of, you know, a new amorphous material. You could also think about taking a conventional steel part and coating those teeth with amorphous metal, which is something that's also really interesting. And one of the things we've been looking at more recently is 3D printing that entire part and let alone 3D printing the part as a net shape. We've actually been looking at 3D printing the part while changing the composition so that the teeth on that part have a different composition than the rest of the part to put higher wear resistance in the teeth, but use a more fatigue resistant alloy in the rest of the gearbox. So that is where, you know, the additive manufacturing, the 3D printing has added a whole new wrinkle to this area of materials. Um, when you can now, you know, 3D print complex parts that were previously machined and you can 3D print them with new materials. And then you can even coat those parts um, with, with amorphous materials or with other materials and create, you know, technology on top of technology to be able to get ultimately low cost, high performance gears. So I really believe that innovations in these areas have a, a, a very direct line towards um, real uh, changes in our day-to-day uh, -day life. If you can make robots uh, cheaper and more accessible, that is really the next thing that will fundamentally change our lives. I know our cell phones have fundamentally changed all of our lives. You know, you know that is a clear case where you know, before the cell phone, the smartphone revolution, the way we interacted with devices was completely different. And the way we interacted with people in our world was completely different. I think a lot of people know that the next big change that comes where people are um, change the way that they interact is with, um, with robots um, that, that work in tandem yeah, uh, it's, it's quite profound.
uh, you know, how, how many of the robotic systems on, on the moon and Mars and, and the, do you think we'll have these, these strain wave gears and, and, uh, but then also the, the amorphous metals? All right, that's a good question. So right now, you know, all of the gearboxes on Mars, they're all conventional uh, gearboxes. I, I can't speak for the other uh, countries that have rovers on the surface, like China has a rover on the surface. I, I don't know what theirs are made of, uh, but certainly all the ones that NASA has made, um, they're, you know, all conventional uh, uh, gearboxes. Um, uh, so uh, of those gearboxes, though, they, you know, some of them are strain wave gearboxes and some of them are planetary uh, gearboxes. Uh, typically in drive systems on wheels, you want planetary gearboxes with a sun gear and planets that go around it. And those are typically good for long life, uh, low torque applications like driving wheels. Um, and then the strain wave gears are really good for the robotic arms and so on. Almost all of those have strain wave gears in them. Um, curiously, the first, um, the lunar buggies that were made during the Apollo days that we all remember the astronauts driving on the surface, uh, the lunar surface in, in those buggies, those were actually powered by uh, strain wave gears, uh, one of the first uh, big time applications of strain wave gears. So those were drive systems that had strain wave gears in them. So I think in the future, if we're thinking about the lunar exploration, um, I think it'll be a combination of planetary gears and strain wave gears depending on the type of rover or lander. Um, does it have a robotic arm? Is it driving? Does it need high torque to like dig and excavate? So it's gonna be a mix of both. And we're very excited about the prospects of getting um, uh, uh, gearboxes, metallic glass gearboxes, amorphous metals on um, some of these robotic arms. So we're working diligently uh, with some commercial companies to uh, see that come to pass. Um, so some strain wave gears and planetary gears uh, into a robotic arm digging on the surface of the moon, we hope is our first infusion of the, of the technology. And so hopefully we're looking at as early as, you know, 2022 or 2023, being able to, uh, to demonstrate that technology. Um, but certainly we expect to see um, these materials being competitive in um, space you know, space-based robotics and satellites for um, all gear systems. Excellent. Um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, the shape, shape memory alloys integrated into, into strain wave gears and if there's some synergy there. Yeah, I think that would also be interesting as well. Of course, with the, the shape memory alloys like nitinol, for example, um, they uh, are difficult uh, to manufacture, just like, like steel is. So if you're going to make these kind of strain wave gears out of um, shape memory alloys, uh, you would have to manufacture them in the same kind of laborious process that's used to make steel. And the, uh, the wear resistance of those alloys is not going to be as good as steel. So they don't have the optimal combination of you know, strength, manufacturability, and wear resistance that steel and amorphous metals have. So I think there's certainly a lot of applications for um, shape memory alloys. They're a, a very underutilized material, just like amorphous metals in spacecraft, but you have a lot of people that are working, including scientists uh, in the group I work in, 
that are diligently working on new applications for shape memory alloys as well. And we also have scientists in uh, the group I'm in that are working in other, you know, really exciting and underutilized areas like 3D printed lattices for spacecraft and in really advanced heat exchangers that are 3D printed for, for spacecraft and in multi-material magnetic materials that go in thrusters that you know enable future spacecraft. So all the scientists in the group that I'm in, they're all working on advanced materials and manufacturing, just like I have been working on uh, amorphous metals um, to, uh, to try to bring some of the benefits of these really novel materials uh, coupled with really advanced manufacturing that has emerged over the last 10 years to do things in space that have previously not been possible. Awesome. Um, yeah, I was uh, looking over some of your other, your other publications and uh, looks like a lot of opportunity with thermal spray additive manufacturing in the ultrasonic welding. Yeah, those are both exciting and emerging technologies. So thermal spraying and also the similar technology of cold spraying, it's you know typically been used as a coating process where you you know just spray either molten metal or hypersonic metal and uh, get it to stick to a substrate and can build up um, nice coatings. But more recently, that technology has been used to actually uh, do like bimetallic 3D printing, where you're making materials that have more than one composition. And that's, you know, a really exciting area, especially because thermal spraying and cold spraying allows you to use alloys like amorphous metals that um, were previously inaccessible in those kind of applications. So one of the really neat things you can do with thermal spraying uh, additive manufacturing, for example, is build up like a really large um, um, uh, iron-based metallic glass part that can then be used in like electric motors and stuff like that. So that's a really exciting use of that technology. Uh, ultrasonic additive manufacturing, that's a, a new uh, and exciting uh, 3D printing technology that basically welds metal ribbons together to produce a net shape that can be one material or many materials uh, together. And that technology has shown a lot of promise uh, for, for NASA for making things like large uh, antennas and cold plates that have integrated cooling in them. Um, so uh, these technologies that are emerging for manufacturing um, they, uh, they offer something typically that is new, something that has never been possible before. So when one of those new additive manufacturing technologies comes around and all of a sudden you can produce a part that you have been struggling to make in the past, that's where it's really enabling. So you've got ultrasonic additive manufacturing comes along and now you can make a giant two meter aluminum part that has integrated cooling in it. Well, dang, that's been a really difficult kind of part to manufacture conventionally with machining or with investment casting. So now we've got something new that we can use in spacecraft. Uh, mind is blown. Uh, it's, it's a lot to process. A lot of really exciting things. So uh, we'll have to read more up on. Um, also really interested in the kind of the 
you know, the organic side of things and, 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 um, uh, of, of this concept. And, and if there could be, uh, some applications on the bioengineering side and really enabling, you know, biological cells to operate, you know, gears without lubricants. Um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously, you know, the bioengineering angle is an angle we don't work a ton on, um, uh, you know, at least in, in our, in our group. Um, we're mostly focused on robotic space exploration, but yeah, the bioengineering world is, um, you know, they're really pioneering a lot of really cool applications for materials and manufacturing. I've just been blown away following, you know, the progress and the work on, you know, 3D printing, you know, uh, biological cells or materials that are compatible with biology and, um, you know, getting, um, you know, materials and biology to uh, integrate together like bone growth through 3D printed materials. So uh, yeah, that area is just really exciting to me uh, to follow, even if I don't have a lot of contributions to that area. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I'm curious if we could adapt these strain rate gears for, you know, from the millimeter scale down to the you know microns and the nanometer side as well for to, to fabricate nanofabricate these gears well i mean that would be awesome obviously the big issue is when you scale things down um you're scaling down the length scale of all your parts so the length scale of my strain wave gear now is like two inches sort of size 50 millimeters now, if I scale that length down to five millimeters, the frictional forces that come into play with gears, they don't scale linearly with length. So frictional forces start to dominate when you make things that are small. So it starts making small gears more difficult. However, with the amorphous metals, there have been really great demonstrations of, of NEMS gears, very, very small gears that are micro fabricated um, and so this is one of those technologies where yeah the gearboxes do work when they're very small but you have to completely redesign them um, to accommodate the higher frictional forces that are involved at those length scales so yeah a lot of people are interested in working on on those so i'd be excited to see the kinds of applications for small devices powered by micro gears Yes, yes, and and you're you're really an inventor and, and you know pioneer in this field. Uh, it really sounds like so. Uh, you know, love a lot of the work you're doing and, and uh, keep up the great research and and, and uh, effort. Well, yeah, thanks for hosting me on this podcast. And as always, I just like to you know thank you know JPL and the huge group of scientists, engineers, and all of our you know, commercial partners and industry partners and government partners. Uh, like I said, you know, this is really a, uh, a team effort. So there's no, you know, one person that's pioneering all of this. We're only successful because we're working together in a big, a big team. So um, this is really a, a really great joint effort. And, uh, and I'm excited that I was able to come and, and talk to you about it. So thanks for having me. Anytime. Look, look forward to next time uh, and, and crossing paths in time. So. Take care. Cheers. Bye.
Cheers. Appreciate it.